Bonjour. Bonjour, mes amis. Comment ça va? I'm putting you in the mood for, for an accent. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. A few points to mention. First, the code for getting CME credits for today is VPE7, which is up on the wall as well if you don't try texting that right now. So VPE7. Secondly, we're part of National Kidney Week, which okay. brings Pierre Cochat here, and we're going to hear his introduction in just a moment. I also would be remiss if I didn't tell you it's, it's Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And last Friday, I don't remember if I wore blue, but there was a blue day. We've had a recent red day, we, but that was a blue day. But this whole month, we're trying to bring awareness to colon cancer. So I would just ask you to think about your patients and whether they've been screened adequately at the times that they should be in their life cycle. So think about that for them. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring Brian Remillard here to introduce today's speaker. As you know, Brian is an associate professor of medicine. He's the section chief in hypertension and nephrology. And he is our director of dialysis for Dartmouth-Hitchcock, among many, many other things. Without further ado, Brian, come tell us about your colleague, Pierre Cochat. Uh, thanks, Rich, and, and um, today is, uh, yesterday was World Kidney Day, and we've sort of turned that into World Kidney Week, but, and I want to thank Rich and the Department of Medicine for the support that they've provided for the last several years for this and for the global health. I also want to thank Ann Hill and, and Judy St. Hilaire, who's my assistant, who's been extremely helpful in setting all up, setting all the venues up. Um, the focus this year is actually pediatric nephrology, but there will be some good lessons for adults here. I just wanted to mention that, you know, there's only, in the whole United States, like a few years ago, there were only six recruits in all of pediatric nephrology, which is really shocking. And, you know, only 50% of the fellowships in nephrology in the United States filled in the past few years. So we've had trouble recruiting uh, nephrologists. When I talked to Pierre about this, it's the most popular specialty or one of the most popular specialties in France. And it just reminds me that maybe we've subordinated, you know, science and medicine to RVUs. And I don't know if we can go back on this, but I, I do think this is a problem. And uh, when I look at someone as talented as, as Pierre, which I'll tell you about in a minute, what are we going to do with kids who have complex diseases in the future? So I, 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 my, my passion for nephrology came because when I was a second year medical student, someone invited me to Lyon. And, um, and I, can't, uh, I, I can't emphasize how important it is for young people to make trips like that, to, to engage and see another system of medicine, because ours has really been um, altered by the economics. And I think there's, there's a world of uh, science and medicine out there that you can find in places like France and other countries. So I'd encourage people to do that. The main reason for today uh, is the main focus of the week is to support Judith Exantis, who's also our, our invited guest today. Judith is the only pediatric nephrologist in Haiti, and our, our pediatric team has been wonderful in, in, in receiving her. I want to thank uh, Amir Al-Nimer Al -Nimer and Adam Weinstein for helping set up the venues in pediatrics. Uh, Judith went and trained with Pierre for two years, and so that's the connection. Um, 
Pierre is here, and uh, uh, it's been a wonderful visit. He's professor of pediatrics at the University Claude Bernard in Lyon, which Claude Bernard is a very famous guy, too, because he, he invented homeostasis. The, before Claude Bernard, the human body was completely dysregulated. <laughs> um, uh, Pierre is the head of pediatric nephrology, rheumatology, and dermatology at the Hôpital Femme Mère Enfant, which is, which, which is women's uh, mother and, and children's hospital in Lyon. He's the coordinator of the reference Center for Rare Renal Diseases in Lyon, the coordinator of the Pediatric Renal Transplantation. And he's also vice president recently of the University Claude Bernard Lyon, which puts him in, in, in charge of the, the deans of the two medical schools. So he has a big, he's, he's looking forward, I think, to his role in shaping health care in the public hospitals in Lyon. And that was, that's interesting to hear his, his insights into that as we embark on a new health care Plan. Um, he's finally the president of the International Pediatric Nephrology Association, or IPNA, which has a footprint in hundreds of countries and does, is doing amazing work and we're hoping can engage with Judith to, to help her with, with, with her work in Haiti. He's published uh, over 300 papers, over 100 book chapters. In, in the States, we love to talk about the triple threat. Uh, the people being a triple threat that's, you know, research, teaching, and and, and, and in clinical medicine. So I invented a word, I hope it's okay, a menace à toi. <laughs> so. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, Brian, for these very kind words. Uh, so it's really my pleasure to speak uh, today about uh, this very rare disease. Maybe many of you have never seen patients with primary hyperxylate type 1. Um, I, I got involved in this disease when I was resident in, in Paris. Uh, I worked with Michel Broyer, a very famous pediatric nephrologist in, in France. And um, at that time, I remember I was very young and they were uh, an adolescent patient coming every day to do hemodialysis. And uh, he already got two kidney transplants who failed, we know now, because of recurrence of the disease. And uh, he was so ashamed to be um, disabled, very disabled. He couldn't move and he came on a bed. He stayed on the same bed during dialysis session and he left on the same bed. And he, he was ashamed for that and he, um, he wanted to, uh, have, to have his dialysis session under a blanket, and he stayed all the time below the blanket for the dialysis. So I was absolutely uh, impressed by, by that, and uh, I think from that time I decided to, <laughs> to uh, be involved in this disease, and it was 32 years ago, and from that time we did a lot of research. At that time we even didn't know what was the enzyme responsible for the disease, uh, of course, no data about um, uh, DNA analysis and treatments, etc. So from that time, there have been a lot of uh, advances. Of course, not because of me, because of a very active group of people interested in, in this disease. So it's really my pleasure to speak about that. So, of course, I have some disclosures because there are uh, only three companies uh, working on uh, oxalosis and of course as an expert I am involved in all these companies. I receive honoraria for expertise with uh, these two ones and I participated at all clinical trials and you will see that there are uh, new clinical trials with uh, these two companies which are very, very exciting. So 
the disease is based on uh, collagen uh, metabolism abnormality. Few people know that, but primarily it's a defect in collagen breakdown because uh, this is just a part of collagen breakdown. And you see that uh, there are some steps, and the most important for, for, the, for today are glycolate here in the mitochondrion, and then uh, gly glyoxalate and glycin in the peroxisome of hepatocytes, and only in the peroxisomes of hepatocytes in humans, because um, in other uh, animal species, it can happen in the mitochondria. So there are some um, uh, important differences like that. So from that, we know three defects now uh, with three different diseases. The, the first one, uh, the first reported was, was PH1, 85% of the cases. It's an alanine glyoxylate uh, aminotransferase defect between glyoxylate, which is very toxic and unstable, uh, uh, which allows uh, its degradation into glycine. But uh, there is uh, also pH2, 5% of cases with this enzyme defect, and pH3. Uh, I will not speak uh, very much about pH2 and pH3, just to show you that the prognosis of the disease is totally different. Not only the number of patients, but the prognosis. You see that this is the renal survival of the patients, and the worst prognosis is with pH1, because after, I cannot read, but I think, I think after, uh, 30 years, you have very few patients with surviving kidneys, whereas it's better with pH2 and quite normal GFR, even in the long term with pH3. I, I guess pH3 has been recently discovered. In 2000, the gene has been identified in, 200, in 2010, and I think that many patients may have this disease, and you, you don't know yet, but uh, I think patients with um, uh, repeated stones uh, should be uh, genotyped with uh, pH3. So let's, let's focus to pH1. Uh, this is the, the three-dimensional structure of AGT, the uh, enzyme, and uh, you see it's a very rare disease, one over 120,000 live births in Europe. I know this, the statistics are the same in North America, but totally different in other countries, you will see. Uh, the enzyme is that one, alanine dioxide aminotransferase. It's a recessive autosomal uh, disorder, and the, the gene, AGXT, uh, uh, is uh, on chromosome 2. So, as I told you, the, the incidence, can you hear me if I, I'm here? Yes? Uh, the incidence of the disease is totally different in uh, some countries where there is a very uh, high rate of consanguinity. And uh, this is a big issue because, you see, these countries in North Africa, Middle East, and uh, also uh, Southeast Asia have a high rate of consanguinity and, for example, uh, end-stage renal disease due to pH in children uh, represents 1% of the patients in Europe versus 13% in Tunisia and 17% in Jordan. I just mentioned these two countries because these are the two best um, um, uh, papers in terms of methods for investigating epidemiology. So you see how important it is. And just an example, in Jordan, I have been there recently, uh, they have 35% consanguinity in the population. So it's really a, a public health problem. 
So what happens more clearly in healthy subject in the liver? We are in the liver. In the liver, glyoxylate, which is toxic, as I told you, uh, is normally transformed into glycine using uh, AGT as a coenzyme. And uh, we all excrete a small amount of oxalate in the urine and also glycolate. In case of um, uh, oxalosis, you have no AGT activity, either because the enzyme is missing or because it's mislocated. You have two kinds of abnormality, but whatever, there is no um, efficient enzyme. And uh, so that gly glyoxylate cannot be converted into glycine, so that great amounts of oxalate uh, go into the urine and glycolate into the urine. Oxalate is a poorly soluble molecule, so it's the reason why you can find it everywhere in the body, whereas glycolate is totally soluble, and we don't know any problem, any disease related to glycolate. Remember that for the end of my presentation. So the, the profile of the disease is the following. If you, uh, we used to describe three stages. Stage one is when the patients have just... Uh, uh, urethiasis and sometimes nephrocalcinosis according to the age and normal GFR. And then uh, stage two is when uh, GFR is going down so that uh, oxalate storage starts in the body everywhere and you have a significant systemic involvement at stage three. But during all that time, the oxalate production is the same from birth to uh, adulthood. We uh, have a registry in Europe, which is the Oxal Europe registry, and uh, from this registry we collected um, quite 600 patients. And from these 600 patients, we got the, the, this um, information, and the presentation used to be uh, mostly infantile form, that is end-stage renal disease before two years of age. End-stage before two years of age. That means that some of them are on end stage at one month of age. Uh, recurrent stones with progressive CKD, 20% of patients. Late onset during adulthood, 15%. And it can be very late. I have seen patients with the first stone at 60 years of age. Pedigree screening, which is the most interesting for treating patients, 15%. And unfortunately, we still have patients with a diagnosis after recurrence in the first transplant. 10%. So because of all these challenges, uh, in 2012, we decided to, to put together um, um, uh, data for providing guidelines. But, you know, usually guidelines are based on a randomized trial. But the disease is so rare that at that time, there were no randomized trial at all. Then we, we did some. But at that time, none, none at, not at all. So. We decided another method, and we selected experts, so-called experts, European experts, uh, uh, based on the number of patients they treated, at, less, at least 10 patients for a rare disease. It's a lot. It's a big series, and at least 10 papers on the, on the, on the disease. So this was the group, and uh, we uh, decided to provide indications for screening and guidance for diagnosis and treatments. And, and the following of my talk uh, will be adapted to new data from 2012, but mainly based on these uh, recommendations. So the first one is um, early recognition. And uh, 
There are some indications for screening and guidance for diagnosis and treatment, like consider a diagnosis of pH in any child, this is for pediatricians, with the first kidney stone and in adults with recurrent stone disease. I think in any of these patients, you should do that. So you have adult patients with recurrent stones, and I think that at least one time, you should just measure uh, urine oxalate. Consider diagnosis of pH in any subject with nephrocalcinosis, particularly when associated when, with decreased GFR. This is very important. Search for pH in the presence of oxalate crystals, calcium oxalate monohydrated, in any biological fluid or tissue. Biological fluid because you can find it, for example, in PD fluid. So it's, it's interesting to know. Screening relatives of index cases is very important and screening in the general population cannot be recommended. I think this last sentence is true in, in uh, America, is true in Europe, but it, it's questionable in some countries where, where the, there is a very high rate of pH. So the problem is how to screen, and it's very difficult because if you want to screen early in newborns, there are physiological high urine oxalate in newborn, so it's very difficult. So the screening should be the gene, and screening a gene is very expensive, mainly in developing countries. So it's, it's a vicious circle, and today we have no answer to that. So how uh, could you do the diagnosis? It's, it's relatively easy. First, you have to think of it, and the, the, best, the, the most common presentation is urethiasis and or nephrocalcinosis and or CKD. If you have, if you have let's say at least two of these three uh, items, I think you should uh, look for it. Uh, then you should look at crystals in the urine uh, and you will find monohydrated calcium oxalate, wevelate, and uh, you also can do uh, infrared spectrometry which will give the result of uh, wevelate immediately. If you measure urine oxalate, it will be more than uh, 0.5 millimoles per 173 square meter per day. Uh, or if you use the ratio uh, to creatinine, one more than 0.1 millimole per millimole. Genotyping should be due either by sequencing or using AGS according to your resources. Uh, that may uh, allow prenatal diagnosis and also in some cases pre-implantation diagnosis, but there are a lot of technical questions about that, of course, because only 20% of pregnancies with pre-implantation diagnosis uh, succeed. So it, I don't think it's a good uh, choice. This is in gray because plasma oxalate has no value for diagnosis. It can be useful in taking care of the patients in the long term, but not for diagnosis because as long as GFR is normal, plasma oxalate is normal. So it's not a good tool. And enzyme activity can be done, of course, from a liver biopsy but it's very expensive, they are very hard to do, and very few people do that. So again, I think you can, you can have all these uh, four things, and that's it. So there are interesting genotype-phenotype correlation. Very strong genotype-phenotype differences, because if you see these patients with these two mutations, which are very common, uh, this is the most common in Europe. Of course, we must speak about uh, regions. But this is the most common in Europe, and you see that uh, hopefully the prognosis in terms of um, uh, renal survival is significantly better than the non-G170R uh, uh, or P152R uh, mutations, which are here in blue. 
Uh, you see the, the half-life is uh, 42 years for this mutation and uh, 23 or 24 for this mutation, a huge difference. One reason is that these patients can respond to vitamin B6, to pyridoxin, and these ones don't respond. But it's not the only reason. I will tell you why later. So uh, there are very important supportive measures, and these supportive measures are very useful, for example, for patients coming from screening, from family screening. And uh, uh, of course, you have to overhydrate these patients. That is more than three liters per square meter per day over 24 hours, and this usually needs a G-tube in, in small children. So you have to put a G-tube very early, usually as soon as the diagnosis has been done. Vitamin B6, uh, the starting dose used to be in 5 milligrams per kilo. You remember it's the coenzyme of AGT, so it helps AGT to act, but only in those patients with the residual activity. If you have no residual activity, you will know you have no effect of, of uh, vitamin B6. And patients with the two mutations in green have a residual activity. The mutation is associated with residual activity, well located in peroxisomes because others are mislocated with the residual activity in mitochondria, and these ones have no effect. You can, you can boost the activity in mitochondria, it will not work. Um, and the, the aim of uh, giving uh, pyridoxine is uh, to reduce urine oxalate by more than 30%. And you also have to use uh, calcium oxalate crystallization inhibitors, and the most efficient one, the most uh, studied one, is citrate whatever the kind of citrate, sodium citrate, potassium citrate, whatever, but citrate, and I prefer potassium citrate because if you give sodium, you will increase urine calcium, and urine calcium will precipitate with oxalate. So it's better, at least at the beginning, before CKD occurs, to give uh, potassium citrate, and the dose is that one. And um, uh, interestingly, there is no interest to limit uh, oxalate food intake. Why? Because the food intake in these patients with the huge production of oxalate from the liver is nothing, is nothing, is this spot. Food, uh, oxalate coming from food is this spot. So please leave this patient, eat chocolate and drink tea and you know, it's better. Interestingly, uh, uh, there are some more precisions about vitamin B6. Uh, it can be discontinued. Now we know that uh, when you have the genotype, we know that only these two mutations are vitamin B6 sensitive, so in other patients you can stop it. And uh, if it is a sensitive uh, mutation, uh, in case of severe infantile form, you can give it IV during the first days. And it's the same for calcium oxalate crystallization inhibitor. You can also give it IV in, uh, in uh, newborns because uh, they use uh, not to tolerate high doses of oral citrate. And you see that uh, this is a retrospective French study, but it's interesting because we uh, included 27 patients uh, with uh, these uh, supportive measures, that is hydration, B6, and citrate. And the age at start was an average of four, and the follow-up was around eight years. And you see that in all these patients, you have the adherent patients here, 
uh, and the non-adherent patients here, and you see that in most adherent patients there is a significant improvement, not only maintenance, but improvement. So you see this patient, for example, starting at a GFR of 30, going up to normal GFR. So it means that it may help disappearance of crystals from the kidneys. What to think about urological management of these patients? You have to avoid open surgery, but in some cases, obstruction, infection, or multiple recurrence, and give priority to mini-invasive endoscopic procedures, sometimes with laser. Uh, you should avoid extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy because if you do lithotripsy through uh, parenchyma with nephrocalcinosis, it will move uh, all the crystals in the parenchyma, and this will generate uh, inflammation. This will increase inflammation because there is already inflammation. Anytime you have a crystal in the parenchyma, you have inflammation around. And this will increase inflammation and increase the risk of fibrosis. So uh, many patients have been reported to, um, to um, decrease their GFR after uh, extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy. So I think it's it, it, to me, it's a contraindication. And sometimes these patients may require long-lasting long GG tube, but when you put a GG tube in such a patient, you will retire a kind of a fossil, because it's fossil is quite fossil, <laughs> because all the tube is totally calcified. So the, the, the removal of the tube can be sometimes very hard. So if you do that, you have to check it and not to wait for a long time because if you wait too long, you will need open surgery. So it's crazy. And uh, bilateral nephrectomy of native kidney can be useful in patients with repeated stones uh, if, even after uh, end-stage renal disease. So in terms of treatment, the first idea, as I told you with my very first patients 30 years uh, before, was to do kidney transplantation. Many patients received kidney transplantation. And you see that this is the survival of kidney transplantation in these patients. The worst, the worst we know. You have 10% survival after five years. So it's awful. You shouldn't do that. This is the survival of kidney transplantation in non-PH patients, any kind of other patients, but non-PH patients, in both in adults and children. And this is the survival of patients who got combined liver and kidney transplantation, including, again, adult and children. And you see, it's not as good as that one, but it's far better than that one. So today, it is the best treatment. Today, today, uh, March 2016. But maybe in April, it will change. <laughs> so what are the indications for kidney, isolated kidney transplantation? To me, no indication, but some possibilities. Uh, in the absence of a diagnosis of PH1, of course, uh, but still now it represents 10%. And less than one month ago, I got a phone call from a very important uh, university hospital in Switzerland where they did a, a transplant and they did the diagnosis just after transplantation. I don't blame it then because sometimes it's very hard because in adults the presentation sometimes is very, is very hard because in some patients you never have stones. You only have a very atypical nephrocalcinosis which uh, uh, is responsible for end stage. 
in developing countries where liver transplantation is not available, but with, this is ethically questionable. In selected patients with B6 responsive mutation, in those patients you can say, oh, okay, there is a re response to B6, so I will give a kidney and give B6 again and see what happens. This has been done in some patients in the Netherlands because it's the group who promoted this sensitivity to B6, but uh, it, it failed uh, after longer period, but it failed in most patients. So again, mm -hmm. it's not a good option. In other selected cases, there are some, always there are some specific cases we can discuss, but I think that isolated kidney transplantation cannot be longer recommended. So what does uh, liver transplantation can provide. Again, this is the same figure. We still are in the hepatocyte, but in the liver graft hepatocyte. Glyoxylate uh, can again be converted into glycine because AGT is, is there. Uh, B6 is not useful. You can stop it at the day of transplantation. And there are small amounts of oxalate, which comes from glyoxylate as well as glycolate. But during that time, uh, you have oxalate, you have kilograms, kilograms, it's not a joke, kilograms of oxalate in the body, mainly in the skeleton. And all this oxalate has to be released and it's released into the, the blood flow and uh, plasma oxalate now is interesting to measure and plasma oxalate is still very high and going through the kidney graft so jeopardizing the graft function of uh, this new kidney, uh, whereas glycolate has no effect again. So there is a risk for the kidney graft if you do a combined synchronous liver and kidney transplantation. But this is true in patients with a huge oxalate storage. In patients with early uh, combined liver and kidney transplantation in the course of the disease, the oxalate storage is limited or maybe absent in patients where you plan a preemptive combined transplantation and it can, it can work. So the indication of synchronous or metachronous or sequential uh, liver and kidney transplantation can depend on the patient. But the problem is how to investigate oxalate storage. It's a hard issue, it's a very difficult issue and uh, the only response today is bone biopsy. So in these patients, it's recommended to do repeated bone biopsy, which we investigated a lot of other non-invasive measures like DEXA, like many other things, but nothing can replace bone biopsy. So uh, what are the recommendations from Oxal Europe today? Uh, plan, of course, uh, with what I just said, plan preemptive organ transplantation at CKD stage 3B to avoid complication of systemic oxalosis, that is between uh, 30 and 45. Isolated kidney transplantation is no longer recommended after there is no other option, uh, unless there is no other option. Combined liver kidney transplantation is recommended in most patients, either simultaneously or sequentially according to patient's condition and to local facilities. And preemptive, that could be a question, Preemptive isolated liver transplantation is not from recommended unless in very well-defined and selected patients. On the biochemical point of view, it's great. You have a patient, you know the deficit is in the liver, you know he will go into end renal disease, so let's say do a, a liver transplantation. 
The problem is an ethical problem. I did that and I published that in The Lancet in 1997. I was very proud of doing uh, the first liver transplantation before uh, kidney involvement and it worked. I was lucky because, um, uh, you know, as you know, when you do a liver transplantation, there is a risk of death. And you should keep that in mind. And I, I think, and many other people think, that you, you shouldn't uh, um, have this risk of death uh, too early in the course of the disease because you never know what will be the evolution of the patient. If you do an isolated liver transplantation, it should be when the GFR is around, let's say, 60, in order to be really efficient. But you never know uh, how long the patient will need to uh, decrease from 60 to, let's say, 10 or 15. Some patients will need one year. So for these patients, isolated preemptive liver transplantation would be useful. In others, it will take 15 years. We never know. We never know. We have no marker for that. No genetic marker, no biological marker. So I think for ethical reasons, uh, for biochemical reasons, it's true, but for ethical reasons, nobody does that uh, anymore now. So, the next step, and this explains the title of my talk, the next step is that uh, in April, it's not a joke, in April, <laughs> we will start uh, new treatments for these patients. Very nice treatment. I just remind you this uh, collagen breakdown abnormality, and we'll just focus on pH1. We cannot do anything on AGT for technical reason. It's not possible because it's, it, the defect is, uh, is not correctable. But we can uh, stop GO, which is glycolate oxidase activity, between these two steps. And uh, if you stop this activity, you will have a great amount of glycolate. But remember, at the beginning of my talk, I said that glycolate is safe. It doesn't provide any disease. And uh, uh, this condition of heavy glycolate elimination is not a problem. So uh, for that, uh, uh, maybe you know that we can use RNA interference. And RNA uh, interference involves the pairing of a short RNA sequence with a 21 nucleotide endogenous mRNA target. And just to show you, uh, the first step is here. RNAi, that is RNA interference, works via delivery of small RNA duplexes, including several options, microRNA mimics, miRNA, short interfering RNA, siRNA, short hairpin RNA, shRNA, and dicer substrate RNA, which is DSA, dsiRNA. So there are, these are several methods. And then this double-stranded RNA-S interacts with RNA-induced silencing complexes here. One strand, one strand leaves a single RNA strand to then interact with the complementary mRNA sequence here. And finally, there is interaction with mRNA. This interaction with mRNA results in degradation and suppression and thus decreased target protein expression. So it's a way of stopping the activity of uh, the protein. So here we can stop glycolate oxidase activity. 
And the use, uh, the problem is that, if you remember, I told you that this uh, issue, this problem, this enzyme problem, was only in hepatocytes. So the next step was to target hepatocytes, and only hepatocytes. And the use of lipid nanoparticles and N-acetylglycosamine have allowed liver targeting, specifically, not only, but mainly focused to liver. So it's, it's a very elegant treatment. And with this treatment, you can stop glycolate oxidase activity. And the first, the very first results um, in animals, these are the results in mice. The guy who invented the, the mouse model is from Tenerife University. I don't know if you're Tenerife in, in uh, Balears, uh, in, um, sorry, in uh, Canary Islands. Uh, he has a huge lab and he works on, uh, on mouse models and invented this my, my mouse model. And you see that um, giving um, this uh, um, um, RNA inhibitor to mice, this is the placebo group of mice, and this is the treated group of mice. And you see this is a normal urine oxalate range. And you see that after one dose, the dose are, are here, after one dose it drops very significantly, and then it increases again. And after two other doses, uh, it returned quite to normal. And this was the very first experiment. And of course, after that, we changed the dose, we changed the dose, we changed the interval between the injections, and we got a normal urine oxalate in all mice. The next step was to to investigate the safety of the drug in uh, in uh, monkeys, and um, we we did that in. Uh, 17 monkeys, and it was very, very safe, except a transient increase in, uh, in liver uh, enzymes, but uh, it, it, uh, it was nothing. So there are some indications for potential um, uh, RNA therapy in the future. It is spe speculated that SESI RNA therapy will avoid liver transplantation, so the question we had before will uh, step down. And uh, it, uh, it would be useful for, of course, for patients with preserved GFR and also for patients who need kidney transplantation because of advanced CKD at diagnosis. But in these patients, we hope just to transplant the kidney and not the liver. But it's too early to, to, to tell that. We will start patients next month. So this should be confirmed within uh, five to 10 years. So you will invite me again to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, there are also very disappointing issues, very disappointing issues, because we had a lot of hopes before that treatment. The first is oxalobacter formigenes. I don't know if you know that. Um, in patients with cystic fibrosis, uh, we give a lot of antibiotics, and these antibiotics uh, kill oxalobacter formigenes from the gut. And uh, we all have uh, oxalobacter formigenes in, in your gut. You all have that. It's a non-pathogenic uh, bacteria. And uh, in patients with um, cystic fibrosis, this disappeared from the body. And this bacteria uh, only feeds with oxalate, with your intestinal oxalate, so that the oxalate in patients with cystic fibrosis increased significantly and was, has been responsible in some patients from hyperoxalemia and high urine oxalate and stones, and typical calcium oxalate stones 
uh, in, in these patients. So on this basis, we said to us, oh great, we will use this uh, bacteria to uh, eat more oxalate in the gut. But we have no, we were not very optimistic because as you remember, it's only 5% of the uh, total oxalate. But anyhow, we had no other option at that time. So we tried that and it failed totally. Placebo and treated patients at the same urine oxalate. So very disappointing. Auxiliary liver transplantation is very uh, tempting because you, you leave the, the, the native liver, in the, at, at least a part of the native liver in the, in the patient. But the problem is that uh, if you leave a small uh, mass of liver, of native liver, it will still produce a lot of oxalates. So will, you will not cure the disease. And the treatment is in these patients today, still today, the treatment is not uh, liver and kidney transplantation, is hepatectomy. The treatment is hepatectomy, and then you do what you want. But the treatment is hepatectomy. So auxiliary liver is not available. Gene therapy, okay, it would be great, but the, the transfection rate, the best transfection rate we may have is around 30%. And 30% is not enough because you will have 70% hepatocytes, native hepatocytes, working and working bad, producing too much oxalate. Uh, it's exactly the same for hepatocyte transplantation. We tried it, of course, but the uh, colonization rate is, is uh, too bad. It's around, again, 30%, so it doesn't work. We did it, and one patient has been treated, uh, one young girl has been treated like that after using it in animal models, but it doesn't work at all. And chaperone molecules, which is very elegant, for example, uh, it has been tried also for patients with Fabry disease, but uh, it is very limited to specific mutations, and today it doesn't work. So it's elegant, but doesn't work. So in conclusions, uh, think of pH. You must think of pH. Uh, try to identify the type of pH, because the prognosis and the treatment is totally different. Early supportive measures are very useful and should be started as soon as you can. Patient information is very important, and you know, I used to show my, my, my slides to patients because uh, it's important for them to understand everything. Uh, the management of pH requires technical and ethical resources, and it's a pity, but all what I said to you is not accessible to developing countries where they have a very high rate of, of pH, so we are crazy to speak about it there. And uh, as you saw, there are very exciting treatment options that may help in the future. We don't have definite results, but honestly, for the first time in my life with this disease, I'm very optimistic in terms of efficacy and safety with this treatment. And I, I didn't receive any grant from the companies. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pierre. I mean, that's a wonderful story of a lifelong devotion to a, to a disease and to the evolution. And, and uh, so I'll open it up for questions. Yeah? Um, that's an excellent rendition of what is available now for other entities. I had the exposure when I was a medical student in 1960 taking care of a patient with uh, hyperoxaluria and oxalosis. And at that time, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that one could do. Um, 
But we were interested in pathophysiology, of course, even then, nothing really was known. But I wanted to ask you, we, we tested the urine oxalate on the parents of this uh, index case. And they didn't have any evidence of hyperoxaluria. And I'm assuming that that would mean that the recessive may not have been adequate to produce a hyperoxaluria. Yeah. Is that right? You're right. Obligate heterozygotes are totally asymptomatic. Totally asymptomatic. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we can use them as donors. And uh, there have been some, um, some uh, combined liver and kidney transplantation with living donors, both organs, uh, usually in two times. Uh, two times for the reasons I told you, uh, and also for better safety to, to the donor. But it has been done around 10 times in the world, uh, mainly in Brazil and in Switzerland. We never did that. I, I'm, I, I would love to do it, but I have no opportunity to do it. But now we will revise our strategy. <laughs> so oxalate should be very dialyzable. Yes, yes. Utility taking a kidney transplant, doing intensive pre-dialysis, intensive post-dialysis to try to remove some of the body's stores, and could that help a transplant to last for the 20 to 40 years that native kidneys can? You're right, and this has been done and published by the Minneapolis group uh, but uh, 20 years ago. Because it works, it works. You, you can do uh, intensive dialysis. It's a very small molecule. It's a 90 uh, kilodaltons molecule, very small, very easy to dialyze. And uh, you can do uh, intensive dialysis before and after transplantation, but you have to stop one day. So uh, if you don't change the liver, it doesn't work. So this uh, aggressive strategy of dialysis should be available even also for combined transplantation. It's better. It's better because you decrease the risk of uh, recurrence. But the problem is that these patients have so many uh, oxalate deposition in the skeleton that uh, the elimination would last for an average of three years. Three years. So, you know, when you have given two uh, organ transplants to a patient, and if you say, oh, okay, you have two, organ, two new organs, but we will still dialyze you, you uh, three to four times a week, I think the challenge will not be accepted. But you're right. So in some patients, uh, we, we, we do dialysis for some days or weeks after transplantation, after informing them before, but not until the end of oxalate removal. This is the reason why in, in these patients, I think it's better to do the liver than uh, go on with the standard dialysis, not aggressive dialysis, because there is no overproduction by the liver. Uh, so you do standard dialysis for, I don't know how long, but the, the goal is to transplant the kidney when you have a plasma oxalate below 20 micromoles per liter. The normal range is less than five, most patients used to be between 100 and 200 pre-dialysis uh, plasma level, but if you are uh, above, um, if you are below uh, 20 micromoles per liter, it's fine. The risk of uh, precipitation is quite null.
But sometimes it takes one year, two years, three years for getting a stable pre-dialysis uh, adequate plasma oxalate concentration. There is a patient now in, in Belgium I heard about uh, who has waited for more than three years after isolated liver transplantation and they still have a plasma oxalate of 40. Can you imagine that? How many plasma he can have in the skeleton? So, um, Brian talked about the business of medicine a bit at the uh, beginning of the talk. And I assume that the, uh, the research and trials of the rare diseases that are most prevalent in developing countries would be something that would be of no interest to industry to, to invest in development. It's changing. It's, yeah. it's moving, yeah. They, they start having interest, and for these trials, uh, they will involve one center in Egypt and another one in Tunisia. I, I, I think I helped them because I work with this country for more than 10 years. They are very reliable, and the challenge is uh, to work together. That is, um, maybe I may have to go there to um, organize the trial, but uh, they are involved by the companies. They are involved. So I think it's a new, a new aspect, and it's very good for this country. Very good, but uh, it's also in the interest because they would collect a lot of patients within a few time. Few time. You, you cannot know. Um, I, I've been in Cairo um, one year ago, or maybe one year and a half, and in the pediatric hemodialysis unit, they have 40 beds. Can you imagine that? We have six. They have 40 beds for dialysis, and half of the patients had oxalosis. And most of them were waiting death, waiting for death. It is because of uh, the diagnosis, because of malnutrition, because of uh, so many things. It's, uh, I, I was impressed. I was impressed. Yeah, maybe I could ask you to wear your hat as the vice president of the University of Dunbar. You know, we're struggling with our healthcare system. Um, you're from a country that has universal healthcare. Yeah. And Lucky to be. Um, first of all, maybe what's how, how do you, how do you make that work in France? You, you talked a little bit about the 35-hour work week, which affects some public places. But how, how can you have provide healthcare in the universal system and and, and 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 continue to get residents interested in things like nephrology? I mean. And, and when you look at the United States, do you see that we have a crisis? Is it apparent to you? Is it? No, no, because you always uh, <laughs> figure as, as the leaders, uh, and I think it's great for you. I, I know that your health system is not the best one. I heard about some comments from you and from here in this room, but, but uh, still you have a lot of, uh, of uh, resource for research, and I think research is the preliminary for any other advance. So I know maybe it's, it's not the reply to the question, but I think that leading research, to me, is the priority all over the world, even in developing countries, because they, they benefit of that, any country. So then your health system, I think, is less um, working than ours. I don't know how long we will keep this good system, but I think um, the healthcare system makes everything equal for patients, for physicians, so that the choice 
of young doctors to nephrology or neurology is a spontaneous one. It's not influenced by the healthcare system, and this might be the answer. One interesting conversation we had was how you pay your doctors. Maybe you could just say, because, yes. because we have people choose specialty by pay, but, but maybe yes. you could just comment it, it's, it's quite easy to understand. Everybody has the same salary on the basis. Everybody. If you're a dermatologist or a heart surgeon or a pediatric nephrologist, if you have the same level in your career, and the level may change, but everybody has the same salary. Uh, and the incomes from the patients, from the public uh, health system, comes from the, um, from the diseases. We have the same system, I think, approximately, than you have. That is, uh, one disease, one uh, investigation, one uh, um, uh, is equivalent to uh, such an amount which is uh, attributed to the hospital and then the budget is shared among everybody. So uh, we all have the same salary. Uh, some, some physician can have, it's, it's legal, can have a private activity even in the hospital. It's limited in terms of time. You cannot spend more than two half days on private activity. Even if you are a surgeon, you can have two half days private activity either outpatient or operating, but two half days, that's it. Uh, and this is the law. And uh, <laughs> it's amazing because yesterday I received an email from my institution, a very official email, telling I, I don't do any private activity, I am just public, 100% public and pr proud of being 100% public. And for those who have had a public activity for more than 15 years, we will get a 700 euro uh, additional salary from this year. Great. <laughs> but you know, we have a good salary. Honestly, we have a good salary. My salary, uh, I am now, I'm old, so I am at the top level, is around 10,000 uh, euros, so $10,000. I don't know what is yours, but in France, it's 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 very per month. Sorry, per month. Sorry, it's it's excellent. No problem about it. So I cannot complain about anything. So, one other interesting conversation we had. It, 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 just the last comment was: we have to talk about Marine Le Pen. <laughs> you know, this, maybe we will join you. <laughs> we don't know politics. This is becoming a real possibility. Yeah. But one yeah. thing I said to, oh, to Pierre, I, I said is even Marine Le Pen believes in universal health care, yeah. Yeah, yeah, public yeah. education, yeah. Yeah. and universal daycare. Yeah, I think so, all our candidates uh, believe in that. They will not change. Maybe they will modify some things because even it's, if it looks good to you, it could be improved. It, it, it should be improved. But uh, I think all our candidates have some suggestions. Uh, but but you, you are right. Even Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I will come and see Trump. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>